Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. To chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. This evening we're going to study all 12 verses of the whole chapter. First Samuel chapter 5, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face forward, downward to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all of the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together again. O Lord, as we consider this ancient testimony of your might, your power, O Lord, your illimited character, we pray that you would give us understanding. O Lord, that you would give us a conviction regarding ourselves. O Lord, that we would see you as you are, not as we would constrain you to be. 
We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. People often try to place God in a box. And here, in our passage this evening, the Philistines are trying to keep God in the box of the Ark of the Covenant. You see, the last time we were together in the book of 1 Samuel, we read the account of how the Israelites came in pitched battle twice against the Philistines. And you may recall that they were at a place called Aphek, a place that the battlefield of was then renamed afterward Ebenezer, a place of a memorial or a stone of remembrance. And what happened was, was a great loss. It was a great loss for the Israelites. Not only once, but twice. There was the first loss, the loss of 4,000, and then a second loss of 30,000 men, and also the loss of the ark. You see, the Israelites had tried to keep God in a box, to wield God as a weapon, to press the power of God into service for their own designs, as if he is a deity who can simply be taken off the shelf to serve the ends of humanity. And in the passage this evening, we learn about the mighty hand, the power of God, the God who will not be controlled by men as he extended his hand over the Philistines. The two points of the sermon for this evening are firstly the supremacy of God over idolatry. The supremacy of God over idolatry, verses 1 through 5. And then secondly, the supremacy of God over opposition, verses 6 through 12. Verses 6 through 12. Idolatry and opposition. God in a battle. Every battle, it seems, of any great nation has always tried to claim that God is for each side. There is almost no conception of a war that isn't a holy war, even if much of its numbers is made up of atheistic people or even the natural or national ethos of a nation uh, holds up a heart angry toward the God of heaven. Well, much in the ancient world that was the case. Again, we saw the last time we gathered in 1 Samuel that in chapter 4, the Israelites had in their heart that they would do with God what they pleased. They had lost because, why? They presumed it was because the ark wasn't there. This great weapon, this great extension of the power of God, and after all, it is a dangerous thing. Uh, The ark itself, it's fairly ordinary if you think of it. It's certainly not like the idol's of the Old Testament. It's a box. It's made of wood. It's made of gold. It has statues sitting atop the box. And within the box, there's manna. There's a budded staff. There are the shards of the broken commandments. It's a symbol that the Lord commanded the people to make, that they would look on it as if it were a visible word and recall the testimony of God's faithfulness. However, they were not called to worship this item. 
This is to be a symbol for the people of the presence of God. Because God ordained to be with his people where? Well, specifically over what was called the mercy seat. Over the lid of the ark that would be kept within the tabernacle. And so as we come this evening to 1 Samuel 5, we have this account of the Philistines who have had this great thing fall into their hands. This ark, this box of the God of Israel. Now you may recall that last time we were in chapter 4, what we read was that the Philistines had heard the great cry come up from the Israelites. They saw the ark coming. They shouted. The Philistines had learned that the ark of the God of Israel had come into camp. And they simply said, a God has come into camp. We've never had to deal with that before. But this isn't just any God. This is the God of the Israelites, the God that freed them from bondage in Egypt. This is the God that rains down plagues from the skies and causes water to turn to blood. This is the God that took the firstborn. This is the God who split the sea and drowned the armies of Pharaoh. And, you know, there's this sense, at least in the testimony of the Bible, that the heart of the Philistines trembled with the fear of God because if a God can do that, well, what could they possibly do against him? These are the Philistines, a great enemy of the people of Israel. They inhabited the area of Gaza along the coast that adjoins Israel. And here they are. They have the ark. You also may recall that last time the testimony of the loss of the ark was demoralizing to the Israelites. They heard of it. The messenger came wearing the earth on his head and having torn clothes, symbols, most likely, of a mourning and saddened heart. And what happened? Well, we saw Eli fall back and break his neck in grief over the loss of the ark. It was that news, not the news of the loss of his sons. And then even his daughter-in-law, pregnant with child, grieving over the loss of the ark gave birth to a child who she gave a name which was little uh, less than a curse within itself and who died in childbirth over the grief. And so again, the Philistines have the ark. It has fallen to them. And when we look at verse 5, the narrative gets directly into it that they brought it from Ebenezer, from the field of battle, to Ashdod, a great city of the Philistines. And in verse 2, we're told that that when they did bring it into the city of Ashdod, that they brought it directly into the house of Dagon. And they set it up beside Dagon into the temple of a false god. And you may not know much about Dagon. It's very likely you don't. Maybe you've heard the name in the Bible, or maybe you're familiar with the story. But Dagon is a Syrian deity or a false god. And it's, it's really uh, a cult that spread all the way through the region of the ancient Near East. Alongside Baal and Asherim and other different cults and false gods. But Dagon is uh, 
thought of amongst the pantheon of Philistine gods as being the chief god or the one that's the most powerful, right? Uh, He has a specific role. He's their most high amongst their pantheon. And so whenever we read in this passage of scripture that the Philistines take the ark of the God of Israel, whom they've already testified to having fear concerning, that when it came into Ashdod, they brought it directly into the temple of Dagon, what are they doing? Well, they're showing us in the narrative that they're afraid of the ark of God. Now, we're not told that any of the men that touched it or handled it, however they did or didn't, that none of them are struck dead, at least at this point, by the handling of the ark. That's going to come later. The terrible testimony of men that are stuck de- struck dead, even by gazing upon the ark. But they bring this ark, this dangerous thing, into the house of Dagon with the sense that, well, of all our gods, if anyone will protect us from the God of Israel, it's got to be Dagon. This is the only one that could enact any protection for us against such a divinity. Now, this is one of those that when we read upon this and we have the contextual understanding of who Dagon is and the cultic practices of the people of the Philistines, that we kind of understand a little bit more about it. So we continue in the text. We read that the ark of God was set up in the house of Dagon next to Dagon or the statue, the idol of this false god. We read in verse 3 that when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, that they had a great surprise. That as the ark had been placed in the house of Dagon, that Dagon at some point over the night, by the power of the God of Israel, had fallen face first off of his little platform. And it, the, the Hebrew text gives us the sense that he's oriented differently. And there's an emphasis here. It's not that he's just fallen off or been toppled over, but rather he's face down before the ark. So we're told the ark is beside Dagon, but we're told that in the next morning, Dagon's not here, but rather he's here, and he's also not on his back or his side, but rather on his face. And if you read the book of Isaiah, whenever the prophet is prophesying about the false gods, the Baals of the Babylonians, there is a testimony that these false divinities will be brought low to bow before the God of heaven. And there's a point here. Our God is greater than idols. And the Philistines came to learn that very practically the first night that the ark was set up in Ashdod. Now, anybody that believes in God and worships God can read this and find a thing quite comical. Because what we read next is not only that Dagon had fallen face downward before the ark, but that the response of the people or the priest of Dagon presumably is this. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Well, this lifeless, 
thing, this thing carved from stone or this thing carved from wood, this image is so helpless and so low before this God who is so powerful. Let's just pick him up. He can't get up. He has no lips that can move and speak. He has no ears that can hear, no eyes that can see, no arms that function, no legs. What do we do with him? Well, we've got to pick him up. Just can't stay like that. This is, as it were, kind of a biblical Humpty Dumpty story, as Derek Thomas has commented on the passage. Another night passes by, and we read that more happens. Verse 4, But when they arose early on the next morning, behold... Dagon had fallen face downward again on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off at the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. The Hebrew says only the Dagon of Dagon was left to him. Kind of a strange turn of phrase. What's going on? Well, there is this symbology that the God of Israel... And this symbol of his presence, the ark, that he is greater than any false god, that he is greater than idolatry, and that not only does he cast down these false idols as nothing that ought to bow before his power, but he destroys them, taking their head, taking their hands, leaving nothing left but a trunk. Why were they at the doorway? So that it would be the most public thing. So that people would see, that people would know that the God of that golden box is not a God to be toyed with. So that the fear of God would strike their hearts, so that they would simply say, this God is greater than all my idols. And as we read this passage, you think, one, we are not in the ancient Near East. Two, they're not exactly across the street, even though there are plenty of places of false worship here, from places that have this sort of idolatry being perpetrated. How does this meet me? We're in the land of steeples. Sure, there's a mosque, block and a half that way. Um, How does this meet me? What does this have to say to me? This is an ancient event. We don't have the ark. Pastor, that was lost a long, long time ago. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's gone. We don't know where it is. Well, here's the lesson. Our God is supreme over every idol and every false god. Not only can he bring any other into bowing submission, but he has power to destroy them. To put it into one sentence, our God is still in the business of destroying idols. And while there is paganism, while there is idolatry that happens in this city and in this country, undoubtedly and certainly so, I think this confronts us with the fact That our God is so great that he can destroy the idols that we place him next to. That our God is powerful to bring into submission the idols of the hearts of humanity, both believers and unbelievers, and to bow them low before himself. 
I think this passage of Scripture also tells us something about our own hearts. That yes, we do have idols, whether it be money, whether it be success, whether it be security, whether it be family, whether it be work, whatever it is. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. And you and I hold on to those, and we hold on to them very strongly. And we set them up in the temple of our hearts, and as Christians, where do we put the God of heaven? Right next to it. That's often the case. Not allowing the Lord to consume, and the Lord to occupy, and the Lord to be the only and supreme and righteous God that ought to dominate our attention, our mind, our hearts, our affections. And this passage is saying to you that our God is powerful to do what we are not willing to do. And that is to cast down and to destroy all of our idols. And to bring us back into the fear of the Lord in a righteous manner. Did the Philistines learn the lesson? No, they just simply picked Nagon up and stuck him back on the thing. The next day, did they learn the lesson? They find the trunk and the decapitated idol. idol. What do they do? Well, they step over that, uh, that threshold as if the head and the hands of the fake god, the idol Dagon, are still laying there. The text doesn't tell us. But it stands to reason they probably just fashioned for themselves another depiction After their own likeness, maybe a renovated and a better likeness of whatever they think Dagon should look like in the course of their worship. They went right on with it. We read in the scripture of other Dagon temples. Can you think of one impressive person in the book of Judges who destroys a temple of Dagon? Samson did, didn't he? It's a great act. That culminating act of faithfulness. But isn't this so much the heart that we can have? We just pick our idols right back up. We just fashion another one and press on. But the testimony again is clear. Our God is powerful to destroy our idols. To bring the things that ought to be in submission to him into submission. And to bring our hearts low and to cause us to quiver before him. And to glorify him and honor him and to look to him. So that we have security in none other than in him and in him alone. If you go on in the passage we read of the supremacy of God over opposition. Verse 6, the narrator gives us right theology. And there's a distinction back and forth because inevitably whenever the Philistines look at what's happened, they attribute it to the ark or the box of the Lord, right? But verse 6, we read it rightly. The hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors both Ashdod and its territory. It's the Lord, it's his doing, it's not the ark. And you see, this is the corrective that the people of Israel should have understood at Aphek. 
at the plane of the battle of Ebenezer. That God wasn't contained in a box, even though he designs and ordains to bless it with his presence and this symbol of his hovering glory within the tabernacle. God's not contained. God has power to extend his hand wherever he will. He's a mighty God, the God of heaven. Not just the God of Israel. I wonder if you've ever read that title for God. The God of the heavens in the Old Testament. That means the God of everything that lies under all of the sky. It's the title of the universal power of our God. And we read that the Lord terrified and afflicted the people with tumors, both in Ashdod, the city, and in the territory surrounding it. And you have to understand a little bit about the Philistines. These are kind of these powerful cities uh, led by the lords of the Philistines, these um, kind of city-states, if you will. They're confederated be one way to understand, or at least we think, and textually it certainly seems to be the case, that these are agreed-upon cities that have a relation to one another. We read in verse 7 that there is a response. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were with the tumors and the terror and afflictions, they said, again, false doctrine, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us. Well, they got that right, didn't they? And against Dagon, our God. So what do they do? Well, verse 8, we read, here's the plan. So they sent and gathered together all of the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of, of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Do you get what's happening here? They called together a council, and the victorious leaders of Ashdod looked around and said, Hey, we can't deal with this. This is too much. We can't constrain this God. We can't constrain him within the temple of Dagon. What do we do? And it's like the leaders of Gath said, well, oh, if Ashdod is so weak, just send him on over. We'll take care of this. Gath is greater than Ashdod. That's the depiction. (laughs) And so, what happened? Well, we read in verse 9 that after they had brought the ark of God around that the hand of the Lord was against that city causing a very great panic and that he afflicted the men of the city both young and old so that tumors broke out on them as well what does Gath do well we got to get it out of here throw the thing out of the window it's like when that really large bug flies into the window when you're driving down the road and you've just accidentally rolled the window up and everybody's in panic and you're just pushing all the buttons get it out get it out right That's sort of the feeling. Get away from this thing. Well, they send it around to Ekron, and the people of Ekron seemed not to have any sense of this. They didn't invite uh, this great and dangerous thing. So as soon as the ark, verse 10, came around to Ekron, the people cried out, They've brought it around to us, the ark of the God of Israel, to kill us and our people. No, don't bring it here. That just seems like a, a really dangerous thing. We will certainly die. The fear of God preceded the ark, the symbol of the presence of the Lord 
of hosts. And what do you see here? Well, you see what can be so evident in the hearts of the converted and unconverted alike, Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers, and it's this. When we think that our God is not worth fearing, we think we can dispose of him if we can't overpower him. Just simply put him off. Yeah, that's the picture. Ashdod said, he's too much for us. We learned our lesson. Gath, we'll take him. We can deal with him. And if we can't, we're just going to throw him out the window. We're going to send him on to Ekron. And Ekron said, nope, nope, nope. We've seen enough. We've learned our lesson. But you and I can do many things uh, that try to push God away or try to dispose of God as if he's disposable. Or if... We have the power to shut his mouth or to stop his wrath. What do we do? We don't come to church. That's one good way. If I don't want to feel conviction, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do one better than putting my fingers in my ears or not reading the Bible. I'm just, I'm not going to go to church. If that God in his word says something I don't like that makes me feel bad, that confronts me and convicts me, I'll just ignore him. That'll shut him up. Yeah. If I don't like him, I'll just deny him. I'll deny his word. I'll deny his existence. I'll deny his son. I'll hate his people. I'll speak against them. I'll hate the church. I'll spit and curse at him. For the Christian, what do we do? Well, we try to put the Lord into a nice little box, a Sunday box. He can come in that door with me at the church. He can sit right there in the pew and say what he wants. But as soon as I leave out of that door, he better close his mouth. And I'm going to go Monday through Saturday, however I want. I'll come back in on Sunday. We'll, we'll do the religious dance together. But I can dispose of him as I want. I can take him up. I can put him down. I can leave that Bible on the table closed. I can ignore everything that comes out of that preacher's mouth. I can deal with them that way. Well, I just want to simply say that the ancient Philistines learned that it doesn't work that way. That this is the God that commands not only his words. This is the God who has command and control over weather, over life, over our bodies. His hand extends. It's a significant thing. They were struck with tumors. How? The Bible doesn't offer an explanation. It came from the hand of the Lord. It's simple enough. He brought them to their knees so that they had to deal with them. You're going to see that in the next passage. You see, they realize after all of the Philistine lords come together in verse 11 and they say we got to send this thing back to Israel let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people because everybody was in pain and panic of death in chapter 6 you're going to learn that they actually decided maybe it'd be a good idea that we don't only send it away because that doesn't work because even whenever it left Ashdod their suffering didn't stop even whenever it left Gath their suffering didn't stop even whenever it came to Ekron and then they came to the council the suffering was still upon the people and men and boys were dying 
They needed to make an offering. I'm not going to go all the way through that. That's next week or the next time we're able to meet. They had to deal with that God. The fear of God struck them. What do I say that this is for the unconverted and the converted alike? Well, it's because these Philistines were obviously unconverted pagans. But don't we have a story in the Old Testament, in canonical scripture, that tells us about a man, a child of God, a prophet of God, called by God to do something for him who didn't like the word, didn't like the mission, and said simply this, I can outrun my God, Jonah. There isn't something so dissimilar. It's as if Jonah had considered that his God would leave behind him, that he'd be able to outrun him, that he could go to Tarshish and get down on the ships and go out into the sea and somehow escape his God. That wasn't the case. So what's the message? It's quite simple. Our God is supreme over the oppositions of the enemy of the church and over the oppositions even of his children. The Lord is more kind, more gracious to his children. But let me simply say, I don't want to be thrown into the depths of the ocean, swallowed by a whale spat upon the shore. I would rather get on the horse of the sovereignty of God and the worship of God than get drugged behind it. And certainly than having tumors. Because I don't fear the Lord. Our God is supreme over the opposition of his enemies and in like manner supreme over the opposition even of his children. Next time we come together, we'll start in chapter 6. We will read and study together the second part of this narrative of the Philistines and their sending of the ark back to the people of Israel. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to receive them and to ponder on you and on your character and on your power. O Lord, help us to love you as we ought. Help us to fear you and to tremble before you and to submit all things to you, O Lord, that you would rule over the things that dominate our hearts and that, Lord, you would reign over us. Draw us back to yourself. Oh, Lord, that you would bring us into conformity and obedience. Oh, Lord, that we might sit at your table and taste the fruits of your kindness and your love and know the fellowship that can be had with you through your Son. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.